Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die because we sin. That you raise him from the dead to give us life. And we have passed from death to life by your mercy and your grace. You have lavished your grace upon us. You're not sparse with it, but you pour it until our cup is overflowing. Help us to be lavish with your grace. Incline our hearts to one another. That we may love one another as you have loved us. And we love you and we love one another because you first loved us. And we respond in love, not because there's love in us, but because your love has been poured out into us and it is your love that we lavish upon one another. Incline my heart to this, your church. Help me to love your church. Incline the hearts of this, your church, toward me. That we may hear your word. Show us Christ. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we behold the Savior of our souls, change us. Save us. I'm a weak vessel. Pray that you would speak powerfully through me, in spite of me. Show us Christ. May my words be your words for the building up of this, your church, for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. I love the Word of God, and this church loves the Word of God. Uh, it's so good to be gathered together with uh, one another, knowing that we love this book. We love the Bible. And in the Bible, we find history, God's uh, recounting of history to us. But also, we find in the Bible literature that God wrote a book 
And the book that he wrote reflects history. It describes history. It, it summarizes history. But it's also literature. God has recorded salvation history with wonderful artistry and creativity. Well, this morning, our goal will be to take a look at this ancient history preserved by God and to revel in the literary beauty of the Bible. And we're going to do this by looking at a particular type scene. Now, what is a type scene? Everyone here actually knows what a type scene is. I'll, I'll describe it for you and then I'll give you some examples. A type scene is a series of plot points in a work of literature that intentionally repeat. In other words, a type scene is a plot pattern that is easily recognizable to an intended audience. So, so if, if you are, have eyes to see and ears to hear a, a type scene, you will recognize it as familiar. Now the problem with us is that we are not the originally intended audience for much of the Bible. All of it really. We're not the original audience. Especially it becomes problematic in the Old Testament. So it's easy for us to miss type scenes that God has woven into this history, which is also literature. But what are some type scenes that we are familiar with? You may not want to admit this, but you're probably familiar with the romantic comedy. I know uh, if your house is like ours, there's always the, the question, do we watch this historic epic or do we watch this romantic comedy? And both of them have their own type scenes, right? But the romantic comedy, let me just ruin it for you. Every single romantic comedy is exactly the same because the romantic comedy is a type scene. You know how it goes, right? At the beginning, there's a boy and a girl, and they meet each other, and they hate each other. They can't stand one another, and yet for some reason, they're forced to spend time together. And over the course of spending time together, they find out that, you know, like... I, I kind of like you, and uh, it's reciprocated, and they fall in love. Somewhere along the line, though, there's a conflict in this uh, made-in-Hollywood romance, and, and the two are, are split apart. Usually, not always, but usually it's because there's some deceit, some lie, some falsehood, some unspoken truth at the beginning of their relationship that comes out later. And so they're split apart, and the, the music gets very sad, and, and the rain starts falling, and, and it feels like not, they, these two will not be able to get put back together again. But then something happens, and the two are drawn back together again. They fall in love, and they live happily ever after. That is every romantic comedy that has ever been written. You don't have to watch another one. That's a type scene. So we're familiar with type scenes. There's also the sports drama. Uh, this is a type scene. There's an athlete. The athlete's either good or bad. It doesn't matter. If you're into Rocky, it's just a very out-of-shape boxer. Uh, but you have an athlete. It could be an individual. It could be a team. It could be an animal. It doesn't matter who the athlete is. But the athlete begins to train for a goal, and they start losing, losing, losing. Then they start winning, winning, winning. Then there's a setback. Just as you think that they're going to win everything, there's a setback. They, they hurt themselves or, or there's some relational problem in their life or they get hauled off to jail or what doesn't matter what it is. There's some kind of setback that's preventing them from reaching their goal. Then they overcome the obstacle and they win. Or if it's a true story, they lose. 
doesn't matter. But that's a type scene. So we know what type scenes are, right? We just instinctively know. You have all the skills you need to read the Bible and look for type scenes. What I want us to do uh, today is to take a, a look at the romantic comedy of ancient Israel. We're going to go back and we're going to take a look at this ancient type scene. Open your Bibles to Genesis 24. At the end of Abraham's life, it's a long life, uh, he has a son named Isaac. Abraham wants Isaac to be married because Isaac is the son of promise through which God will bless Abraham with many descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham does not want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman, so he calls his ma uh, servant in, asks his servant to do this very awkward thing, put your hand under my thigh. We don't do that, thankfully, in our culture, but that was a way for the servant to swear an oath. And uh, basically, Abraham says, I want you to go back to my hometown. I want you to find a relative for my son Isaac. Bring her so that he may get married. So we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 24, verse 10. Before we do that, though, I almost forgot to do this. I should tell you what plot points we're looking for, right? In the romantic comedy, in the sports drama, we know the plot points to look for. We don't often have eyes to see this type scene, so let me give you the eight plot points that we're looking for. Uh, we're going to see that there's uh, plot point number one, a man traveling far from home. Plot point number two, this man goes to a well. Often he sits, not always, but he, he goes to a well. Plot point number three, Women come to the well. Plot point number four, water is drawn from the well. Plot point number five, the woman runs into town or back home to tell news of this man at the well. Plot point number six, the man is invited for supper. Plot point number seven, over supper, the man and the woman are betrothed to be married. Plot point number eight, the man and the woman consummate their marriage. That, this is this type scene in the Bible, and it repeats many, many times. So let's take a look at it. The first time we see it is in Genesis chapter 24. Look for these eight plot points, starting in verse 10. So the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed back to Abraham's hometown, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he rose and he went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. Nahor is Abraham's brother. So that's plot point number one. We have a man traveling far from home. He has ten loads of camel, uh, camels full of stuff. Why? That's the dowry, right? He's, he's going to try and purchase a bride for his master's son. Plot point number one, we have a man far from home. Verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Plot point number two, he goes to a well. Verse 12, and he said, oh Lord God of my master Abraham, please Grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. 
Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Plot point number three, a woman comes out to the well. It's Rebekah, this is Isaac's cousin. Verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. Plot point number four, she draws water and she gives some water to Abraham's servant. She quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Now just think for a moment. There's ten camels, some of them with two humps probably. Camels can drink for a long time. This is an all-day affair. She says, I'll, I'll water your camels. This is what the servant asked for. Now what is her motivation? On the one hand, this shows something about her character, right? This is the kind of woman that we want Isaac to be married to. On another hand, she sees camels filled with gold and jewelry and choice food and all kinds of cheeses and wonderful things. Might she think that there's something in it for her? Either way, it doesn't matter. What I want us to notice now, this is neither here nor there, but it's interesting. Men don't imitate the servant. Look at the servant. She's spending all day bringing water up, watering the camels. This is a lot of work. She's sweating. She's exhausted. She's probably starting to shake because of the lactic acid in her body. And verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. You know, hour after hour. I think maybe she is. So he didn't help at all. So men, this is, this is a good example in the Old Testament. You don't always imitate what happens in the Bible. Probably could have helped her out. Uh, verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Now just, she got her wages, right? So that's good. A, a gold, heavy gold jewelry. And he says, whose daughter are you? And then, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She's thinking, aha, uh, if, if I get rewarded like this, if they spend the night, my whole father's house may be rewarded. And she said in verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So obviously the servant knows uh, Abraham's family tree. He knows that this is a relative of Isaac, just as Abraham wanted. Verse 28. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Plot point number five. The woman runs in, tells news of what's going on at the well. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. 
As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelet on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. So you see Laban's incentive, right? Look at your jewelry. Where is this man? And he runs to the well to get the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Verse 31. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed his camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Verse 33, plot point number six. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, that is Laban, speak on. Now, we're not going to read verses 34 down to 49. Why? Everything I just read to you is repeated. But I want you to notice this. Why would God repeat all that detail? Why not just say, and so the servant repeated everything that we had just read. Because God is establishing a foundation. Whenever God repeats himself, especially to the detail, you know that it's really important. And so we, we get a repeat of everything that has happened to this point. God is trying to say, this type scene is important to me. I want you to note it. Right, right now you're thinking, well, like, what in the world does it have to do with anything? It, it will make sense. God said it once, and then God said it twice in Genesis 24. What this says to us, this is really important to God. Skip down to verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel, so that's Rebekah's brother and father, answered and said, this thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Now, I know we have to sort through some cultural differences between us and them. But what I want us to notice here is there's a betrothal of marriage here in verse 51. Now skip down to verse 61. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the men. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw. And behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she, when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? servant said, that is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. We don't get a repeat, but that's the third time that it's indicated. Go through all this plot sequence again. Verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Plot point number eight. The marriage is consummated. Now, what, what in the world is that all about? Why has God put that in the scriptures? Why has he repeated that type scene twice? Well, we're not done. Flip over to Genesis 29. What I want us to see is that God's going to repeat this entire sequence of plot points a third time. This time, it's with Jacob. So remember our plot points. Genesis 29, starting in verse 1. 
Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So we have plot point number one. We have a man traveling far from home. Incidentally, he's traveling uh, far from home because he has stolen the birthright from his brother. Then he has deceived his father into stealing the blessing of his father. So right now, his father and his brother, who should have received the birthright and the blessing, are not too pleased with him. And so his mother, who loves him dearly, says, you got to get out of here because they're going to kill you. So, so that's what's occasioned this man traveling far from home. And so Jacob flees for his life. He comes to the land of the people of the east. He's far from home. Plot point number one, verse two. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. Plot point number two. This man, far from home, sits by a well. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? Uh, they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Now, he, he knows who lives in Haran. He's found himself right back to the same well that his father father's... Uh, Isaac's servant found his mother to be a wife. So he's at that same well. He said, yeah, we know him. We know, we know Laban. Verse 6, and he said to him, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Plot point number three, we have a woman who comes to the well. Verse 7, he said, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep. And go pasture them. In other words, get out of here. So Jacob wants to have some one-on-one -on -one time with Rachel at the well. Verse 8. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother... And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near, rolled the stone from the well of the mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Plot point number four, water is drawn from the well. This time it's Jacob who draws water for Rachel. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and uh, that he was Rebekah's son. And plot point number five, she ran and told her father. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. He remembered the last time someone from this family had showed up, he got ten camel full of, uh, camels full of goods. So he runs. He, he kisses Jacob. And Jacob told Laban all these things. What things? Everything that happened to him. So you see, I was born second. I sold a birthright. I'm running for my life, etc., etc. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. I, I, I see a lot of you in me. I might have done the exact same thing, says Laban. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. We don't really know what that means, but she wasn't much of a looker. We find out later she wasn't very pretty. 
her eyes were weak. But Rachel, by contrast, was beautiful in form and appearance. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her away to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Plot point number seven, the man is betrothed. You'll notice that there's sort of a reversal. Food is the plot point number six, which is going to come up right now. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, this is not very poetic, so just guard your ears. Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. He's pushing for consummation. Verse 22, so Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. That's plot point number six. So there's this wedding feast. Verse 23, but in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. We have consummation, but it's consummation with the wrong woman. I mean, this is disastrous. How do you explain that in the morning? Oh, whoops, I, I've consummated with the wrong woman. And it's very awkward. Uh, family breakfast would have been kind of tough that day. Verse 24, Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob was shocked. And Jacob said to Laban, what have you done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Which is kind of ironic because he, the younger son, deceived his father. So there's a little bit of poetic justice here, right? The younger son took from the older son. And now Laban has said, ah, you're, you're my bone and my flesh. I might do the same thing. And he gave his younger or his older daughter, even though Jacob wanted the younger daughter. Laban said, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. A little bit of a dig at Jacob for what he had done. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also. So we have a repeat of plot point number seven. We have another betrothal. But, said Laban, you must serve me another seven years. Jacob did so and so completed her week, a week of years. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhan and his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, double consummation. We have plot point number eight, this time with the right woman, Rachel. And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now you're like, oh my goodness, that's, that's getting complicated. What I really want you to notice though is do you see, if you have eyes to see, these two stories are very much the same. If, if this was an ancient romantic comedy, they would have said, yep, all of the, the things that I would expect to see are there. Now, just to show you that this is not a coincidence, flip forward to Exodus chapter 2. Moses has been born. He's been raised... In Pharaoh's house, he knows that he is born to Hebrew slaves. So we pick up the story in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? 
And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me just as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now just notice, just as uh, Jacob fled for his life, Moses flees for his life. We have plot point number one. Moses flees, stays in the land of Midian. We have a man far from home. Plot point number two, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and they drew water and filled the troughs with their father, uh, filled their troughs with water for their father's flock. We have plot points three and four, right? Bang, bang. Right? Now we had one wife in Genesis 24. We had two wives in Genesis 29. Do we going to have seven wives in Exodus 2? That's a question. We have women coming to the well. We have water that is drawn from the well. Verse 17, the shepherds came and drove them away. Reminds us of Jacob at the well and his whole incident with the shepherds. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. We have a double uh, drawing of water here. Verse 18, when they came home to their father Reuel, uh, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, plot point number five, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. These women return home and tell news of the man at the well. Verse 20, and he said to his daughters, well, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Plot point number six, bring him to supper. Uh, verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Plot point number seven, there's a betrothal. One woman, thankfully, not seven. And she gave birth to a son. That's pretty good evidence that there was consummation. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You see, by the time we get to Exodus 2, it's like, okay, let's just get the eight plot points down. That's the whole story, right? So we've seen uh, the same sequence of plot points with Abraham's servant for Isaac, with Jacob, and now with Moses. What we're about to learn here is that the men and the women involved in this uh, type scene become key players in salvation history. She so say, ah, if there's a man who finds a wife at a well and they, ha they consummate their marriage, we know that, that these two, and you think about Isaac and Jacob and Moses, uh, these, these men and their wives are going to become key players in what God is doing in salvation history. Which is why when we get to 1 Samuel 9, and we're not going to read it, but let me just show you there, we have we have a discontinued type scene. So you have, at the beginning of chapter 9, we have a man named Kish. He's got a son named Saul. And the elders of Israel had just gathered together in 1 Samuel 8 and said, we need a king. So we're looking, who is this king going to be? Who, who is going to be the key player in salvation history? Who will be the king of all Israel? And so, so Kish sends his son Saul to find some donkeys. And, and Saul and his companion go far from home. And they're looking for the donkeys. And Saul says, you know, I, I think my dad's going to stop worrying about the donkeys. He's going to start worrying about us. Let's go home. And his companion says, well, I think there's a man of God in town. Let's go and inquire of him. Maybe he can tell us where the donkeys are. And, and Saul says, okay, fine. Let's just go and do that. And on their way, they pass by a well. And wouldn't you know it, some maidens come to the well. Which makes you think, is Saul going to be another Isaac, Jacob, or Moses? 
if he was, because you are now attuned to it, what you expect is that someone's going to draw water for someone. Then they're going to have a meal together. And then there's going to be a betrothal and then a consummation. If that had happened for Saul, you might say he's the man that God is going to use. But you know what happens? Saul, totally oblivious to Genesis 24, Genesis 29, and Exodus 2, uh, as these women come out, he says, Hey, uh, is there a man of God in town? They say, Yes. Thank you. And he leaves. He doesn't finish the type scene. And what do we know about Saul? He doesn't become a key player in salvation history. What is this all about? Why does this matter? All of this has been preparatory. It's been a lot of work. Like, what? Why are we going through all of this? Well, today, we are starting a series called Jesus in the Old Testament. In order to see Jesus in Genesis 24, Genesis 29, Exodus 2, and even 1 Samuel 9, we have to change the way we read the Bible. The Bible is more than a depository of propositional truths. You can't just mine the Bible for how should I behave. You can't just mine the Bible for systematic theology and say, okay, what can we affirm as true about God? We have to, it's not that it's wrong to do those things, but it's incomplete. We have to change the way we read the Bible. There is a narrative fabric to the Bible. There are patterns. There are sequences. There are things that God says, this is really important to me. And even though it seems that it shouldn't be important to you, I want you to notice that it's important to me and I want you to make it important to you as well. This narrative fabric of the Bible, when you're reading through the Bible, we have to look for it. Because it's in this narrative fabric that we can see Jesus more clearly. Jesus did not just come to fulfill particular laws. He did not just come to fulfill particular predictive prophecy, though he did all those things. More than that, Jesus came to fulfill the very narrative fabric of salvation history. Everything that has happened in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled in him. He is the fulfillment of every detail, every nuance, every narrative story. One thing that we know about this type scene is that it's a marriage type scene. In addition to these men and women becoming key players in salvation history, it's the story about how Isaac and Jacob and Moses got hitched. It's also the story of how Saul failed to get married at, in this type scene. Now, does this type scene remind you of any other chapter in the Bible? I would suggest without doing the work that we did, we'll never fully understand John chapter 4. Open up to John chapter 4. This is where the payoff begins. All the hard work of reading through the Old Testament. Saying, what does this story have to do with anything? This is where it begins to pay deep dividends in our understanding of the gospel. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus 
learned that the Pharisees uh, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria is that northern part that used to be where the northern kingdom was. It is now filled with Samaritans, which were practicing a perverted form of Judaism, and, and ethnically they were part Jew and part Gentile. We have a man far from home, Jesus, in Samaria. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, what happened to Joseph that we've spoken of today? Or Jacob, sorry, that we've talked about today. Verse 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus, at 12 noon, sits down at a well. What happens at 12 noon? Well, the women start coming to the well. Think Jesus is aware of this? Why would he put himself in such a type scene, a betrothal-type scene in Samaria? Plot point number three, verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now Jesus is stuck, right? He he knows Genesis 24, Genesis 29, Exodus 2, 1 Samuel 9. He says, should I act like Saul and get out of here? Because I'm not sure I want to marry a Samaritan woman. She comes out to draw water. It's plot point number three. What's the next plot point? Water is drawn from the well, right? So Jesus, knowing fully well what's going on, look what he says. Jesus went up to her and said, give me a drink. What's Jesus doing? He's actually initiating the next plot point in this sequence, which we know ends in betrothal, in consummation. This is risky business, Jesus. Was he really that thirsty? Why does he do this? And, and so when you're interpreting this chapter, it's more than deconstructing the social taboo of a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. It's much bigger than that. And in fact, our anxiety has to be much higher than that. It's Jesus stepping into a type scene where he might get married to a Samaritan woman. Now look at verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Oh, great. They're going to come back. There's going to be a meal. Jesus is going to get married. Uh, John 5 is just basically going to say, and Jesus got married and nothing else happened. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to, it, said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us a helpful hint here. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. These two groups hated one another. So, thankfully, Jesus is off the hook. Like, he lost his mind for a moment. He tried to advance a betrothal type scene, but the woman is not willing. Thank goodness. It's not true. Verse 10. Jesus answered her. If you only knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Think about the ten camels, right? When, you, you may have wondered why I spent some time talking about Rebecca's motivation. She saw that there was something in it for her to water the camels of Abraham's servant. What was in it for her? Well, gold jewelry. 
Now, Jesus is referencing back to the, that, those ten camels. And he says, look, if only you knew the gift of God, you should see my camels. You should see the goods that I've brought with me as my dowry. If only you knew who it was. If only you knew the gift of God, much more than ten camels full, then you would have drawn water. You would have participated with me in this type scene. In fact, you would have asked me to draw you water, and I would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you've nothing to draw water with. She's a very practical woman. And the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now she is asking Jesus to take the next step in this type scene. Draw me some of this water. Give me some of this living water. I want it. I don't really know what this gift of God is, but I do want living water. So our anxiety is high at this point. Is Jesus going to draw water? Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Oh, Thank goodness, Jesus is not actually going to draw water. He's not going to marry this Samaritan woman. She, in fact, she's married. Verse 17, and the woman answered him, I have no husband. Oh, no, she's eligible. You see what's happening here in, in the text? Like, we're just, the anxiety, the up and down, it, what's going to happen here? Now she's eligible. Is he going to draw water? And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. You've had five husbands and now you're living common law. You're living in fornication. What you said is true. You don't have a husband. He's called her out on, on some pretty spectacular sin. Is this the woman that Jesus is going to marry? Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, this is just classic misdirection, right? I don't want to talk about my, my failures, my sin. Let's talk about worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now this does tie in. We don't have time for it today. This does tie into the type scene, but I want us to focus in on, on the primary points today. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It's in verse 26 that Jesus draws water for the woman. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Why do I say that that's where Jesus draws water for her? Anyone know, who knows the proper identity of Jesus, anyone who knows that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, anyone who knows that, God draws for them living water, and that living water gives them eternal life. So by revealing himself to the woman, he draws living water for her. And you know, Jesus is not in the habit of telling people that he's the Christ. If you read through the Gospels, he's always like, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. He's deliberately not drawing water for people. He's, he's letting them fumble around and drink dust. But here, to a Samaritan woman, he progresses the type scene and he says, I'll draw water for you. I want you to know who I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am your Savior. And if she receives that, if she takes what Jesus says and says, you are the Christ, and she drinks that, she will be saved and she will have drank living water. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. But nobody said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Why not? Well, maybe they knew Genesis 24, Genesis 29, and Exodus 2. They're like, okay, I didn't think it was in the plan, but it looks like Jesus might be getting married. They didn't ask her what was going on. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's plot point number five. He drew water for her. He draws not physical water, but living water. Notice what she does. She, she had gone to the well with a jar to get physical water to quench her physical thirst. She leaves her water jar at the well. Because Jesus has drawn for her living water and she runs into town to tell news of the man at the well and says, there is a man at the well, might he be the Christ? They went out of town, uh, out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, why do the disciples want him to eat? I don't really know. There's two options that are totally contradictory. I don't, either they say, I want to participate in this type scene. I want to be a part of this betrothal meal. Or they're saying, eat something so you're not hungry. And you don't take their invitation to go back into Sikar and have food with this woman's uh, live-in boyfriend or her father. Because we've invested too much. We've left father and mother and, and jobs and occupations and fields and boats. We don't want you getting married in Samaria and staying here. I think I lean that way. Jesus says, look, I've got food to eat that you don't know anything about. You're not able to derail what I'm doing here. Verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him here something to eat? You see them all trying to like accuse one another. Like, Judas, did you give him a fish? No, I didn't. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is plot point number six. This is the meal. My food, says Jesus. My food in this type scene. Remember, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows the scriptures. My food in this type scene, this betrothal type scene, this type scene where the man and the woman become key players in salvation history, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
So what is the meal of this type C? What is the will of the Father for Jesus? Fast forward in time. Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he say? Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will. Your will be done. What's the will of the Father for Jesus? What is the food of Jesus? That Jesus go to the cross. It's amazing to me that we have a meal that we're going to share in today that remembers the fact that Jesus went on the cross, which means that this meal is the meal of the type scene. This is a betrothal meal where Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, the will of, of, of the one who sent me is to die on the cross. Jesus gives us a meal to remember the will of the Father, which is that Jesus would go to the cross. That's plot point number six. Now a question. Is that where this type scene ends? We see the first uh, five points. The man far from home, sits by a well. A woman comes to the well. Water is drawn. The woman runs into town to tell news of the man's arrival. And we have a supper prepared, the will of the Father. Is there betrothal? Is there consummation? I would say absolutely there is. The type scene is taking us in that direction. And yet look at the conclusions that we must come to. Who is the bride of Christ? In this type scene, it's a five times married, fornicating Samaritan woman. Is this who we want Jesus to be married to? Do we want Jesus to enter into a marriage relationship? Do we want him to consummate? A marriage relationship with a five times married, fornicating Samaritan woman? Yes. Because we are that woman. We are the five times married, fornicating Samaritan woman. Which is why we're at the meal. Jesus started a type scene in Samaria 2,000 years ago, and it's still going on. And Jesus right now is saying, come, come, be my bride. Why did he choose a Samaritan woman? Why couldn't he have just gone to a, a sinful Jewish woman? Well, because a Samaritan woman, by the very definition of her ethnicity, is both Jew and Gentile. In this Samaritan woman's blood ran uh, Jewish ethnicity and Gentile ethnicity, just like the bride of Christ. Just like us. The church is Jew and Gentile. Uh, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me, Jew. Come to me, Gentile. And eat with me. Be my bride. What about consummation? Well, when we come to faith, there is 
in one sense, consummation. Why? What do we say when we come to faith? What is it? We are born again. We are born again. That's, that's a language of consummation. Jesus is the husband of sinners. Even five-time married fornicating Samaritan women. He's the husband of the church. Do you ever feel unworthy? Do you ever, in, in, a, in a moment where you're alone, not when you're putting on the makeup, and I'm not talking about physical makeup, I'm talking spiritual makeup. Not when you put on the face to come to church. Not when you put on the face to go and go out into the world, but when it's just you and God. Do you ever feel unworthy? God couldn't love me. He, he couldn't forgive me. He couldn't, he couldn't send his son to die for me so that I might be one in the body and as the bride of Christ. Well, let us remember that Jesus came for the Samaritan woman. He came for us. He didn't come for those who looked like they had it all together. Let me ask you this. Do you ever feel like you're a pretty wonderful bride for Christ? You know, I am the kind of bride that God would come for. All I can say, if that's your heart, woe to you. Because he didn't come for you. Not if that's your heart. In fact, Jesus hates self-righteousness in his bride. Today we will share in plot point number six. And as we share in this, we remember that this is a betrothal meal. You take it if you want to be betrothed to God through Christ. Do you want to be among the bride of Christ? Then you take and you eat. Not because you're worthy, not because you're righteous, not because you're without sin, but because you are like the five times married fornicating Samaritan woman. And then the promise is this. Once we are betrothed to Christ, there will be consummation. There has been partial consummation when we are born again. But, do you know how the Bible ends? The Bible ends with consummation of the type scene. Genesis 24 is finally fulfilled in Revelation 19. I want to read this to you. At the very end of the age, after all things have been dealt with, uh, Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder. And the people cried out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us re rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For finally, the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's consummation. That's when all things will be consummated. That's when the bride will be gathered. And the final consummation of Jesus will be had. And look at this. And his bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride? Well, John says it's this Samaritan woman. But, verse 8, it was granted to her, to us, to clothe herself, to clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright 
and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Yeah, we're wretched. But God comes in his grace and he lavishes it upon us and he changes us and he makes us ready. And then he dresses us in splendor and he marries us to Christ. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing and then we're going to participate in this type scene. We, like Rebecca and Rachel and Zipporah and the Samaritan woman, are a bride. And we are a bride for the key player in salvation history, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you have come for us, not because we are righteous, but because we are in desperate need. But you have come and you have betrothed us. Help us to enter into this betrothal with you. Help us to sup with you today in promise of future consummation at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Oh, Jesus, our bridegroom, we praise you. Amen. The Lord's table is a Passover feast. It's a new covenant meal. And as we've learned today, it's a betrothal meal. Uh, this supper comes after water has been drawn. It's for people who have recognized that Jesus is the Christ. It's those who have given their sin to Christ. It's for those who have said, give me some of this living water. Maybe you're here and, and you, first of all, need to draw into that well. And you need to drink of that living water. And, and if that's you, we're so glad that you're here. And we would invite you to go to Christ and say, give me some of that living water. And he will. But if you have already drank from the well which is Christ, and you want to enter into this type scene with him to be his betrothed, to be the bride of Christ, then we eat this meal together with the promise of future consummation. I'm going to ask those who will be distributing the elements to come forward. We're going to distribute the elements, and then I'll pray and we'll take them together. My food, said Jesus, in this betrothal type scene, is to do the will of him who sent me. The will, the one that sent Jesus, was that he die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The food and the meal of our betrothal to God through Christ is nothing less than the crucifixion of the Son of God. By his cross, he purchased for himself a bride. If you believe this, take and participate in the betrothal of the bride of Christ. Jesus, we thank you that we can share in this meal, which is a remembrance of your death on the cross for our sin. Thank you for purchasing us as your bride.
God's intention for marriage is that the two, a man and a woman, would become one flesh. Uh, and Paul writes that this is a profound mystery, that it really is pointing toward the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, when a husband and a wife come together, their blood is mixed together, especially if they conceive a child together. Now, this is interesting because the blood in the veins of that Samaritan woman was Jew and Gentile, just as the church. But the blood in the body of Jesus belongs to none other than God himself. It's a profound thing that God would call us into a one flesh union with the Son of God. We remember the life is in the blood, and when Jesus spilled his blood to purchase us as his bride, he spilled out the life of God. As you think on these profound truths, praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Take and drink if you believe these things. Oh God. I pray that you would grant us to be clothed in fine living, bright and pure, that you would ready us for the day when we will be caught up together for the marriage of the Lamb. Between this day and that, help us to purify ourselves as you are pure. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If Rebecca knew the gift of Isaac, by looking at ten camels full of goods, let us not miss the gift of God that comes with Jesus Christ. John 4 ends this way, with consummation. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves that we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Drink from the well of living water, eat a betrothal feast, and be married to God through Christ. Go with peace and great joy. God bless you.